today we're going to begin a, a new series looking at the, the Sermon on the Mount. Um, and if you think my sermons can sometimes step on people's toes, um, be prepared because um, bring your steel-toed boots because he steps on a lot of toes. But there's a lot of things that are in this Sermon on the Mount of Jesus that is really easy for us to miss because we want to see them simply through the eyes of 21st century American. And you can't just see them that way to fully understand them, to fully understand where Jesus is coming from. So today's kind of just really just kind of an introduction in getting into um, the Sermon on the Mount, a little bit of background information. Um, as we look at the Sermon of Jesus, our posture has to be that of a student or someone seeking to learn. That's really what disciple means. Uh, Mathetes means learner. Um, so to be a disciple of Christ is to be a learner of the ways of Christ, the, the things that he taught, the way he lived, the way he treated people. So when we look at kind of a breakdown of the Sermon on the Mount, uh, Matthew 4, 23 through 25, Matthew, Matthew outlines what he's going to tell us about Jesus' ministry. And then Matthew 5, chapters 5 through 9, he tells us about Jesus' ministry. Matthew 10, Jesus sends out the 12 disciples to do what he just taught them in the sermon. And then uh, Matthew, really as a kind of a synopsis of the Sermon on the Mount. So Matthew 4, 23 through 9 chapter 9, verse 35, it literally lays out a sketch of the mission and the ministry of Jesus. So let's break that down a little easier for you. Chapters 5 through 7, Jesus teaches and he preaches. Um, chapters 8 and 9, he heals and he disciples. Chapter 10, he sends out the 12 to do what he taught them. So let's break it down even maybe a, a different way. You see, because for us to understand this, we got to break things down. So chapters 5 through 7 is hear it and receive it. Chapters 8 and 9 is see it and receive it. And chapter 10 is go do what I just taught you through what you heard and what you saw. Easy enough, right? So when I give a message, they call it a sermon. I like to call it a message um, because you say sermon, and if unchurched people are in here, they hear sermon and they're like, oh, he's going to preach at me. Well, I don't want to preach at people. I want to help teach you about Scripture. I want to help teach you about life and how to grow as a disciple. So I don't want to talk to or at you. I want to talk with you and to you. 
So at the end of the, the message, um, we don't have a, a bulletin anymore, but in the order of worship, right after the message, um, I would put in there prayer over the scent. Well, that was intentional because what you heard and what you saw, now I'm praying over you because now you're sent to go do what Jesus taught. In John 20, verse 21, Jesus says, as my father sent me, I am sending you. Don't miss that. He says, as my father sent me. How did his father send him? Did, his, did he send him to do whatever he wanted for himself because he thought he knew better than his dad? No. Did he send them to get all the praise and the glory for himself? No. He sent him to be a sacrifice for other people. To teach people and draw people back to God. That ministry of reconciliation, as Paul calls it. And Jesus says, as my Father has sent me, I, Jesus, send you. So if you're a disciple, you're sent in the way that Jesus was sent. To be a sacrifice for others. There are two parts, kind of, and it's kind of the, the beginning and kind of the end, the kind of the bookends of the Sermon on the Mount that I want to look at today. The first part is found in, in Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. In, in the heading, might read in your Bible, the fulfillment of the law. This is what it says, starting in verse 17. Matthew writes, or Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I tell you, until heaven and earth disappear, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen, will by any means disappear from the law until everything is accomplished. Therefore, anyone who sets aside one of the least of these commands and teaches others accordingly will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you that unless your righteousness surpasses that of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law, you will certainly not enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus begins this section with the words, do not think. Why does someone say that phrase? Unless somebody has already thought it, right? So he's, already, he's addressing somebody out there in that crowd had already thought, oh, if he's the Messiah, he's coming to get rid of everything. 
We don't have to do all of those rules anymore. We're free, free at last. You know, no more of any of that stuff. This Jesus creed threatens the legalist and the minimalist, but expands the Torah to its divine expectations for the one who genuinely loves God and loves others. And as we'll see, that when you look at Scripture, if we were to use just one word to summarize kind of the Old Testament and the New Testament, I would say the Old Testament we could summarize with law. They had the law to guide them. This is what they were supposed to do. But if we were to look at the New Testament, I think love is probably the best word to articulate the New Testament. And in our minds today, we think that love is so much easier. But we're just, we're New Testament people. I went to seminary with a, a a pastor who's pastor of a brethren church. They don't do Old Testament. Like, literally, like they only are, like, they're New Testament church. So what did he do? He preached a whole year just in the Old Testament. Didn't even touch the New Testament. I love that guy. But you see, what Jesus does is he takes the law and he shows you what the law equals in love. And as we'll see, things get a lot more difficult. You see, Jesus did not lower the standard. Jesus raised the standard in the expectation for those who follow him. Fulfillment or fulfilled does not mean abolished. Jesus said it did not come to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. See, there's, there's kind of two kinds of law in the Old Testament. There's the, the ritual or the ceremonial law. Those were, you had to come on like the Day of Atonement and you had to make a sacrifice for your sins. You had to give, so at the festivals, you had to come and you had to give a sacrifice. And there were constantly being sacrifices made of whether some form of animal and its blood had to be shed for our sins. And there were things that they had to do. They had to honor the, the feasts and the festivals that they had to come together and fulfill these rituals and fulfill these ceremonial laws that they had to do. Why were those there? Well, those were there to keep them connected to God. Because as we know in the Old Testament, the Israelites loved to wander away. But then there's the moral law. You see, the ceremonial law, Jesus did get rid of it. Because Jesus became that one 
lifetime sacrifice for all humanity's sins. He became what was referred to as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was that Lamb who who shed his blood as that one-time sacrifice, no longer needing to, to do the sacrifices and the rituals of the law. But then there's the moral law. The moral law did not change. He didn't get rid of it. He came to fulfill it. All of those things that it says that we're supposed to do, he came to show you that it was possible to do them with your life. That it was possible to be in the midst of a a heated conflict and still love somebody. You see, the gospel and the moral law of the Old Testament agree. They're not opposed to each other. They actually complement each other. John Wesley said this. He said, therefore, there is the closest connection that can be conceived between the law and the gospel. On the one hand, the law continually makes way for and points us to the gospel. On the other hand, the gospel continually leads us to a more exact fulfilling of the law. The law, for instance, requires to love God and our neighbor. It requires us to be meek, humble, and holy. We feel that we are not adequate to do these things. With men, this is impossible. But we see a promise of God to give us that love and to make us humble, meek, and holy. We grab hold of this gospel, of these glad tidings. This is accomplished in us according to our faith. The righteousness of the law is fulfilled in us through faith, which is in Christ Jesus. How do we fulfill the law? We fulfill the law because of how we live for Christ. the Pharisees, it says that the the righteousness had to surpass that of the Pharisees. You see, true righteousness does not come apart from Jesus Christ. True righteousness comes through Jesus Christ. You see, the Pharisees saw the law and the gospel of Jesus being two different things. And that's why they pushed back so much. Because they didn't realize that Jesus was actually saying, they're together. These aren't two different things. I'm trying to put this in, um, for us, a little different language. I'm trying to put this in plain English and dumb it down for you guys so that you understand what I'm trying to get at. But they were like, oh, that's not what it says. And since that's not what it says, that's not it. So that's something totally different. But it was exactly what it said. I encourage you that, you know, to prepare for this next week, read 
the chapters of Matthew 5 through 7. That's the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. We, we don't have the time to look through every single one of them, but we'll look at a lot of it. But then I'm going to jump to the end kind of of the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 24 through 29. Jesus says this, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine, remember, he's, this is kind of the conclusion of the Sermon on the Mount. So this is what he's saying. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a wise man who built his house on the rock. The rain came down and the streams rose and the winds blew and beat against that house. Yet it did not fall because its foundation was on the rock. But everyone who hears these words of mine and puts them into practice is like a foolish man who built his house on sand. The rain came down, the streams rose, and the wind blew and beat against that house, and it fell with a great crash. Two types of people, those who hear and do, those who hear and do nothing. You notice they have something in common, right? They both hear. But only one listened. Because when we listen and we hear, we respond. We act on what we've heard. The sermon presents Jesus' moral vision and and summons us to follow him. And the sermon is designed to prompt one to make a decision about Jesus. That decision being, will you follow him or will you not? Will you follow him or maybe another way or will you lead your way? You see, when it comes to your faith, you were never meant to be the leader of your faith. You were always meant to be the follower. Are you leading or are you following? Because if you're leading, when you look at the Sermon on the Mount, you'll find that you're, you're like, well, I don't do that. That's not how I do things. That's how we're supposed to do things? You see, the ultimate goal of a follower of Christ is to become more Christ-like. If we've been Christians for 30 plus years, but we don't look any more like Christ than we did the day we became a Christian, you're leading yourself instead of allowing Jesus to be the leader. As a disciple, we seek to learn. You hunger to learn the ways of Christ. He says, therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine. To respond to the sermon is not to respond to some ethical vision 
To respond is to respond to Jesus. The proper response is to declare who he is by the way we live our life. That is how we respond to the things that we hear. things that we hear, the way that we live, do they align? Do they line up? As we go through this series, I I think you're going to find that there are things in your life you find Jesus kind of pushing back on. The, I remember uh, giving a message before on, on the Sermon on the mountain, and I had talked kind of about the, the murder part where Jesus talks about the, the Ten Commandments of, you know, thou shalt not murder. And I, I hadn't read the scripture. I just, like, was paraphrasing what the scripture said. And I said what Jesus I'm not going to ruin it for you. I mean, I want you to go read it, right? So Jesus says, well, this is what love requires of you. And I literally, no joke, look up, and people are shaking their head. I'm like, in my mind, I'm thinking, are you crazy? Do you think I'm going to come up here and say that and it's not in there? But it's plain as day. It says, oh, You think killing somebody's murder? Mm -mm. That's not kill. Like, that's not murder. Even to hate somebody is to murder them in your heart. Love requires a whole lot more of us. Would just reach out your hands and receive his blessing. Jesus, I pray that you will work on us this week. I pray that you would remind us to, to go to your scripture and, and read your sermon, not Dustin Jones's sermon, but Savior of the world's sermon the message that you proclaim for us as your disciples. God, I pray that we would be receptive. God, I pray for ears to hear, that you would give us eyes to see, that you would give us a heart to receive, and that you would give us a mouth to proclaim your love and your truth. Give us faith, Jesus, we pray. Amen.